It's the Victorian Variety Show. My beloved Laura, said she to me a few hours before she died, take warning from my unhappy end and avoid the imprudent conduct which had occasioned it. Beware of fainting fits. Though at the time they may be refreshing and agreeable, yet believe me they will in the end, if too often repeated and at improper seasons, prove destructive to your constitution. My fate will teach you this. I die a martyr to my grief for the loss of Augustus. One fatal swoon has cost me my life. Beware of swoons, dear Laura. A frenzy fit is not one quarter so pernicious. It is an exercise to the body, and if not too violent, is, I dare say, conducive to health in its consequences. Run mad as often as you choose but do not faint. These were the last words she ever addressed to me. It was her dying advice to her afflicted Laura, who has ever most faithfully adhered to it. This is the Victorian Variety Show podcast in which I take an in-depth look at aspects of life during the Victorian era that may not receive as much attention as perhaps they should in an academic setting or in media representations of that time period. Or in some cases, I might look at phenomena that are commonly associated with the Victorian era, but try to ask why those phenomena occurred as well as on whether they actually occurred as often as we might believe, because I find that in depictions of the Victorian era, the myths can sometimes be very different from the reality, or at least they leave out some important factors, and as a result, they might not be as accurate as maybe they could be. That's probably why they're myths. My name is Marissa, and the excerpt I just read is taken from a very early work by Jane Austen called Love and Friendship. According to Wikipedia, Austen wrote this work as a teenager in 1790, quite possibly for the purpose of her family's entertainment. It's a fairly short piece, written in what's called epistolary form. I might not be pronouncing that correctly, in which case I apologize. But in other words, each chapter of this form of writing is actually written as a letter, in most cases by the heroine, Laura, to the daughter of a close friend. And in this excerpt, Laura is recounting advice given to her by another close friend, Sophia, shortly before Sophia succumbed to, quote, a galloping consumption, end quote, a.k.a. tuberculosis. And even though this passage predates the Victorian era by several decades, I chose it because I thought it would set the tone for the topic of today's episode, in which I'm going to look at fainting, which occurred rather often among women primarily in Victorian literature. And 
I'm going to explore how much of what we know about Victorian fainting culture, if you will, might be myth and how much was the reality. But before we talk about fainting culture, I think we need to talk a little bit about what fainting or swooning is. In an article called The Corsets Are Gone, So Why Are Women Still Fainting?, which I'll include a link to in the show notes, along with all of the other sources that I used in putting this episode together, Jenny Valentish tells us that fainting or swooning, or, to use the medical term, syncope, usually occurs due to an insufficient blood supply to the brain. Some reasons Valentish provides for fainting include low blood pressure, low blood sugar, dehydration, and lack of iron, all of which can be caused by a number of factors. On the whole, women have traditionally been more prone to fainting than men due to biological factors. For example, lack of iron might be caused by heavy, heavy menstruation or something like that. And Valentish also points out that age seems to play a role in how likely both men and women are to swooning. For women, the quote-unquote peak swooning periods seem to be between the ages of 15 and 30, and then again later in life. Whereas for men, it's most likely to occur after age 60. However, Valentish suggests that the image of a woman fainting is a quote-unquote trope that was perpetuated especially by male artists and writers, especially in the 19th century. And it's been seen more recently on stage and screen. Valentish mentions as examples Goldie Hawn's Overboard and Foul Play in the 1980s, as well as a 2011 Bollywood film called Ra One, and one that I thought of, which is from the mid-20th century, but because I once went through a period during which I read a lot of Tennessee Williams plays and saw adaptations of some of his works, it's really stuck with me, is Blanche Dubois in A Streetcar Named Desire. Even though genuine fainting, as opposed to quote-unquote mock fainting, which I'll get into sh more shortly, occurs due to bodily regulation issues, Fainting, as it's been portrayed among Victorian-era ladies, seems to be associated with one piece of clothing in particular, which you may have already guessed. The corset, which is an undergarment worn around the torso area that's often stiffened and tightened by lacing. In The Truth About Corsets, Busting the Myths, Molly Elizabeth Agnew explains that the corset, the name of which derives from corps, the old French word for body, existed long before the Victorian era and had a very important practical purpose for women of all social classes, namely to support the back and the breasts and to help carry the weight of additional layers of clothing. Agnew suggests that ideally, Corsets were intended not to diminish the waist, but rather to create a silhouette. So, a corset that was fitted properly and not laced too tightly usually allowed for sufficient movement and thus wasn't as uncomfortable as is commonly believed. But, of course, 
we are talking about what is commonly believed here, which is why for many of us, myself included, until I started doing research for this episode, the 19th century trend of tightly laced corsets, which had the effect of making women's waists, and at that upper class women's waists, appear smaller, is the one that tends to stand out. In corsets and the Victorian fainting culture, Lucy acknowledges that there were several reasons why a Victorian woman clad in a corset might faint. One of these was shortness of breath due to overexertion. But, as Lucy points out, wealthier women often had several corsets close at hand. A quote-unquote day corset, which presumably allowed for more freedom of movement, and a quote-unquote formal corset for special occasions, such as parties or balls, that was often somewhat smaller and or tighter laced than the day corset because it was intended to create a more dramatic silhouette. It's easy for me to picture a woman feeling like she might faint after dancing for a few hours in a garment that's too tight, for sure. Plus, once again, she was often wearing several layers of clothes on top of that corset. In some cases, as with Southern Bells in the U.S. in the second half of the 19th century, in hot weather as well as cold. According to Lucy, quote, Consider the full monty of undergarments, a chemise under the corset, bloomers, the corset itself, a corset cover, possibly a hoop skirt, several petticoats, and then over that would be a blouse, an overskirt, possibly a jacket, train for the skirt, and perhaps a little hat or bonnet on top of your head. Clothing can exceed 20 pounds at times, and there would be around four layers of clothing between your skin and the air, which, even if made from the lightest linens and using the thinnest corset, would still add up in weight and insulation, end quote. As for dehydration, which I mentioned a few minutes ago, Lucy tells us that it can result from either overexertion or overheating, but she doesn't blame corsets for causing dehydration per se. Instead, Lucy claims that wearing a corset can make you aware of what's going on in your body. So, you might feel thirst more intensely while wearing a corset than when you're not wearing one. However, Lucy also gives us some reasons why women may have fainted during the Victorian era, regardless of whether or not they were wearing corsets, and believes that, particularly in the case of upper-class women, it was entirely possible to faint due to fear or surprise. Now, if you spend enough time researching the Victorian era, it's easy to believe that, between accidents with factory and farming equipment, widespread disease, surgery that was unsanitary and often grisly, sensationalized murders and public executions, it was hard for people living back then to avoid shocking and sometimes gory news and images. And in fact, many people living during that era actually seemed to seek out sensationalistic literature and attended maybe theater productions based on high profile murders and things like that, because it's not like they had TV, movies, or video games for entertainment. However, 
news generally didn't travel as fast as it did in today's 24-7 cycles. You know, an event that today might show up minutes after it happened online may have taken a day or maybe much more to appear in a newspaper. And social media back then largely consisted of word of mouth. So it's not a stretch for me to imagine upper-class Victorian women living in more pleasant surroundings and probably interacting with fewer people on a regular basis, not being regularly exposed to the ugly things that someone who lived in a city with a higher population density, often in squalid conditions, might see firsthand or hear about from someone who did see it. Plus, if you were assigned female at birth and a male has ever apologized to you for using foul language in front of you in a way that suggests that he doesn't think your pretty little ears can handle it. You might wonder how often shocking news was withheld from proper Victorian ladies. I mean, don't get me wrong, I'm just speculating here. But based on gendered expectations surrounding behavior that have been around from time immemorial, the possibility of women being largely shielded from what was going on in the rest of the world, but then being shocked to the point of fainting when they finally did encounter unavoidable, surprising news, does seem within the realm of possibility. That said, Lucy also suggests that Victorian women were taught to pretend to faint, which she refers to as quote-unquote fainting, with feign spelled F-E-I-G-N. On the surface, this may sound like something women did back in the day to gain people's attention, or maybe to get out of doing something that they didn't want to do, or maybe to avoid meeting someone that they didn't want to meet. And I don't doubt that that happened at least some of the time. But before we judge fainting women for being quote-unquote drama queens or throwing quote-unquote tantrums, it's important to realize that during the Victorian era, it could be easy for a proper woman who expressed how she really felt about something to be deemed unladylike and therefore ostracized from afternoon teas or croquet games with friends or whatnot in the best of cases, and in the worst case, diagnosed with hysteria, which might even lead to her being committed to an asylum. According to Lucy, quote, fainting was said to be one of few ways to abruptly change a subject or leave a room while still saving face and being considered a lady, end quote. So, when we look at pretend fainting, I think it's possible to acknowledge that it might have been a privilege that could be easily abused in some cases, and an indication that something legitimately wrong was going on under the surface in others. So, when a woman fainted, either for pretend or for real, where would she go, or perhaps be taken by an attentive male suitor? According to an article on the Victorian Era website called Fainting Couch in Victorian Era, fainting rooms where ladies who felt faint or dizzy could rest were common during the Victorian Era. 
And a so-called fainting couch is a sofa that usually has a raised back and armrest on one side and is often decorated with frills, curves, and other designs. According to Wikipedia, the use of the term fainting couch wasn't documented until the 20th century. But if you search online for Victorian fainting couches, you will see quite a few elegant designs, many of which look rather plush and comfortable. So it's pretty easy to picture one of them in the home of a well-to-do Victorian. Still, fainting couches were actually rather versatile in how they could be used, which I think further emphasizes that even though they were handy for a woman of means to have around in case she fainted, this was not their only use or what they were even intended for. If you're familiar with the controversial Austrian neurologist Sigmund Freud, who did much of the work he's known for in the early 20th century, but started his psychiatric practice in the 1880s, you might not be surprised to learn that Freud frequently used couches like those we associate today with fainting in his practice. In fact, the Victorian-era site calls Freud's use of this piece of furniture, quote, an iconic tool in his practice, end quote, because it helped the patient to relax, which, presumably, allowed them to open up more about their dreams and early experiences. In addition, in everything you need to know about a fainting couch, Monique Valeris describes the fainting couch as a type of quote-unquote daybed, which could serve as a comfortable place to retire to with a good book or maybe for an afternoon nap. Valeris cites interior designer Danielle Rollins, who explains that, quote, during the Victorian era, once the housekeepers had made the bed, that was it, and the lady of the room was not to get back in it until the bed had been turned down for her. End quote. And in the myth about Victorian women you can stop believing, C. Morris explains that fainting rooms, most of which apparently didn't have closets, why I'm not sure, I'd like to find that out at some point, were basically where the daybeds were kept, which residents, either female or male, could periodically rest. So even though I think it's safe to make a few assumptions about fainting couches and rooms, namely that these fancy couches, not to mention houses big enough to include rooms based around them, were luxuries that were out of reach for millions of working class Victorians, and they also suggest to me the need for leisure time to use them, which again, people who worked six or seven days a week in factories didn't have, we might also be forgiven for thinking that what we might have heard about these things being for fainting is more myth than reality. Having said all that, it's also possible for one to feel faint outside of the home, in which case smelling salts, or as Kelly Gosshorn calls them in swooning a Victorian fad, quote-unquote lady revivers, might come in handy. According to Gosshorn, there is not actually any salt to be found in smelling salts. Rather, they contain ammonium carbonate, which can be mixed with water to release a gas that irritates the windpipe and the nose's lining, 
which apparently helps a person feel more alert. Gosshorn tells us police constables often carried smelling salts around with them during the Victorian era so that they'd be able to revive women who felt faint on the streets. And in addition to smelling salts, Victorian women who anticipated the possibility of fainting in public could be proactive and carry vinegar on their person. In the connection between vinegar and the fainting couch, 19th century customs, Vic points out yet another reason why someone might feel faint during the Victorian era. Foul odors, such as those caused by rotten garbage and raw sewage found in many London streets. And explains that a small sponge soaked in vinegar was considered quote-unquote indispensable, not only in masking such stenches, but also in helping to revive those who did swoon. Vic tells us that many stylish Victorian men and women carried their vinegar-soaked sponges with them in a compartment in the head of a walking stick or cane, or in vinaigrettes, which were small decorative containers that could be, quote, suspended from chatelaines, placed in pockets, hung from long chains, bracelets, or finger rings. Often designed in the shape of a rectangular box, the more spectacular vinaigrettes took on the look of a vase of flowers, a purse, an urn, almost any contemporary theme. Made from multicolored gold or silver, and sometimes silver gilt, many were decorated with Italian mosaics, mother of pearl, or other gem materials. End quote. I'm going to wrap up my discussion of Victorian era fainting culture here, but I do want to take a moment to mention a few things that I noticed in researching this topic. I didn't find what you might call an abundance of research on this phenomenon, first of all, and it did seem to me like some articles that I looked at bought into the myths surrounding fainting women more than others. For example, not all of the articles that discussed fainting couches or rooms pointed out the practical reasons for them. Also, aside from housekeepers who made the beds of well-heeled Victorian women, which, according to some of the sources I looked at, made it necessary for the latter to use fainting couches during the day, I really didn't see women outside of the elite classes mentioned at all in most of the research even though I find it hard to believe that working-class women didn't feel faint from time to time due to a host of things, ranging from inhalation of noxious fumes on factory floors to sheer exhaustion from long days in the factory. How did they cope? Did they tough it out or push through it? We can make assumptions, but we can't say for sure. But this topic also got me to thinking about how women were treated from a medical perspective during this period. And some myths surrounding female fainting, such as those that blame much of it on too tight corsets, seemed like they were perpetuated by men who really didn't understand how women operated physically or mentally. And on the other, as one of a few ways in which women were able to express how they felt without facing disastrous consequences. If I sound inconclusive here, I'll admit that I am. And while I realize how frustrating that may sound, 
Hopefully, the next time you come across an example of a woman fainting in a Victorian novel, you'll think about what it might mean in the context of the story. And also, think about the wider world in which that story takes place. But now, I would love to know what you think. Email me at the Victorian Variety Show at gmail.com or leave me a voice message at anchor.fm slash marissa d96 slash message. You can also follow me on Twitter if you don't already at twitter.com slash victorianvariety1. And if you'd like to support this show financially, there are a few ways in which you can do that. You can buy me a coffee at buymeacoffee.com slash marissadf13. Or you can make a donation if you're listening on the Good Pods app or through my link tree, the link to which is in the show notes. And finally, I would greatly appreciate it if you could take a moment to rate and review this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Good Pods, Spotify, Podchaser, Audible, or wherever you listen as that will help this podcast reach more listeners. Thank you so much to all of you for listening to this episode and for all of your support of my show. I recently crossed the 10,000 total plays mark and I'm still amazed when I think of the positive responses I've gotten from people and the word of mouth. I am truly grateful for all of it. And I'm always thinking of ways to make this show even better and interact with all of you more often. I'll be back in two weeks with a brand new episode. But for now, I'm going to leave you with another prominent depiction of a woman fainting in Victorian literature. Although it was published in 1836. So technically, it predates the Victorian era by about a year. It's from Charles Dickens' first novel, The Pickwick Papers. And in this scene, a widow named Mrs. Martha Bardell mistakes a request for a servant by one of her lodgers, Samuel Pickwick, to whom she's taken quite a fancy for a marriage proposal and faints in his arms. And while he's standing there holding this woman in his arms and feeling awkward in front of his friends, Mrs. Bardell's young son walks in and, as you might imagine, things become a little awkward. Mr. Pickwick was struck motionless and speechless. He stood with his lovely burden in his arms, gazing vacantly on the countenances of his friends, without the slightest attempt at recognition or explanation. They, in their turn, stared at him, and Master Bardell, in his turn, stared at everybody. The astonishment of the Pickwickians was so absorbing and the perplexity of Mr. Pickwick was so extreme that they might have remained in exactly the same relative situations until the suspended animation of the lady was restored. Had it not been for a most beautiful and touching expression of filial affection on the part of her youthful son. Clad in a tight suit of corduroy, spangled with brass buttons of a very considerable size, he at first stood at the door astounded and uncertain. But by degrees, the impression that his mother must have suffered some personal damage pervaded his partially developed mind. 
and considering Mr. Pickwick as the aggressor. He set up an appalling and semi-earthly kind of howling, and butting forward with his head, commenced assailing that immortal gentleman about the back and legs, with such blows and pinches as the strength of his arm and the violence of his excitement allowed. "'Take this little villain away,' said the agonized Mr. Pickwick. "'He's mad!' "'What is the matter?' said the three tongue-tied Pickwickians." I don't know, replied Mr. Pickwick pettishly. Take away the boy. Here Mr. Winkle carried the interesting boy, screaming and struggling, to the farther end of the apartment. Now help me, lead this woman downstairs. Oh, I am better now, said Mrs. Bardell faintly. Let me lead you downstairs, said the ever-gallant Mr. Tupman. Thank you, sir, thank you, exclaimed Mrs. Bardell hysterically. And downstairs she was led accordingly, accompanied by her affectionate son. I cannot conceive, said Mr. Pickwick when his friend returned. I cannot conceive what has been the matter with that woman. I had merely announced to her my intention of keeping a man's servant when she fell into the extraordinary paroxysm in which you found her. Very extraordinary thing. Very, said his three friends.